cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Today we're talking to Neil Sharon, who's one of the original pioneers of cybersecurity, starting out in the Critical Information Assurance Office, the Chow, way back when. She's now the founder and president of Trinity Cybersecurity. So still in the business, a really good conversation. Tell us how you got into cyber. When did you start? So I made my way into cyber in many ways by happenstance. So I had worked on issues around uh, internet taxation and funny enough, the Akamai Digital Island lawsuit funny. that had occurred. Yeah. Um, but really, my first foray into cyber and honest was when I was part of the CHOW, or the mm -hmm. Critical Infrastructure Assurance Office, mm -hmm. which was a little-known office over in the Department of Commerce, um, where we helped support Dick Clark and the president's cyber board. What was it like working on cyber policy? Because that was the Clinton administration, wasn't it? No, I actually joined right at the beginning of the Bush administration. Oh, okay. um, but the interesting thing is a lot of the folks that had been involved in cyber in the Clinton administration handed off to us. Mm -hmm. And then many of them, funny enough, were the same people that at the end of the Bush administration, we handed back off to oh, as well funny. in different roles. What was the challenge for the chow? I mean, it was basically a new entity. It was. It was a new entity at a time when we had a lot of new entities. And so when people ask me about the early days of cybersecurity, mm -hmm. I oftentimes back up and want to put it in context, mm -hmm. right? And so you had a new president came in, you had 9-11. So within 18 months, you created the Office of Homeland Security. You had a national strategy for Homeland Security. You passed the Homeland Security Act. We had the cyber strategy that was released, a critical mm -hmm. infrastructure protection strategy that was released, and we stood up DHS. And so that 18-month period was a period of a bunch of new things all coming about at the same time while struggling with mm -hmm. some pretty big challenges as a mm -hmm. country. And so being a new organization that was part of that, uh, being part of the transition to create the new department, it was exciting and challenging and crazy all at once. If you were going to redo this strategy, what would you do a little different now? And not just based on things have changed, but looking back, were there things you wish you'd gotten in the strategy or things that you wish you'd left out? Um, so I'll answer that two ways. I think that there, uh, funny enough, were a lot of great recommendations mm -hmm. that wind up being the same recommendations we've made repeatedly. <laughs> uh, you, you noticed. <laughs> I have. Uh, you know, uh, to give you kudos, CSIS and, and you personally have led many reviews on cybersecurity. It seems like they've occurred every time we've had a new administration. And many times those recommendations are actually the very same things that were in the strategy that um, mm -hmm. Dick Clark released in February of 2003 at Stanford University. Mm -hmm. Right? They're, they're still fundamentally the same things we keep saying. Yeah. And so I asked myself, are the recommendations wrong? Is there a challenge on implementation? Mm -hmm. 
or should we maybe be thinking about it differently? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's kind of a combination of, of several of those. You had asked specifically about the lessons learned and the things I would do differently. In creating DHS and in creating a new department and new organizations, we were quick to assign new roles. But what I think we failed to do is we failed to tell anyone to stop doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and we can talk about this uh, in more if you'd like, but one of the things I found that was challenging in implementation is when you'd have policy meetings around what needed to happen and who should do it, everyone showed up with the table with conflicting authorities. They all had authority to do the same thing. And so we'd create a new organization tasked with a very noble goal, but we never said to another organization, now you stop doing this so the new entity can do it better. And so in hindsight, as I look at it, I think we should have been much more careful about defining who would be doing what. I think we needed to do a better job setting measures of success. Mm. What does Mm -hmm. success look like? What are we trying to achieve? And in many ways... In standing up DHS, for example, you know, we transferred an entire entity out of FBI uh, and IPC, but on day one, they showed up with empty billets. And so you're challenging a new department to take on new responsibilities without anyone in place. And we talk about the challenges of hiring cybersecurity experts. Mm-hmm. You have a role that 60-some people used to do, and now you have no one to do it. <laughs> um, and they're expected to hire them as I heard a new they department. didn't want to give up their law enforcement uh, billets, that they didn't want to give up their you know, different job classification as a law enforcement person. And that's why they hadn't moved. Um, I think there were a lot of legitimate mm-hmm. arguments for not moving folks. Um, and we can debate those, but the reality <laughs> is you wound up yeah. with a responsibility that no one took on, or there was no one to take on that responsibility. Was it called NPPD then? Ah, so originally back in the day, uh, Title II of the Homeland Security Act created the Information Analysis IAIP and Infrastructure Protection Directorate. I know. Uh, <laughs> we've renamed it multiple things yeah. since then. Uh, the pendulum has swung back and forth as to whether cyber and critical infrastructure needed to be handled together or separately. What do you think on that? I have a vote, but I won't tell you until you tell me what yours is. I lost, by the way, which gives it away. I would argue that they are inextricably linked mm-hmm. and that in separating them, you do each a disservice. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that's where the certainly CISA came out. Uh, I was saying focus on the cyber mission, uh, but people agreed with you that they need to, they're inextricably linked. Yeah, I, I think when you say cyber mission, my first question is, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Right? I think um, in many ways in cybersecurity, we're quick to use that phrase. And I think each of us in a, our mind has an idea of what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it means different things to different people. Why did they put the cyber function under the secretary rather than making it a standalone like uh, Coast Guard or the, any of the customs derivatives? Why was it until just this last year it was it was part of the secretary's office? Was that intentional or? Yeah, it was intentional. Um, oh, interesting. As you know, there were a lot of views on yeah. how it should be handled. Right. And you had multiple organizations, many of whom had different authorities and responsibilities. And there were a lot of well-fought policy debates. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there is a right or wrong answer as it relates to that. 
Um, you know, I know Dick Clark used to say that having multiple entities with a responsibility creates healthy competition. And so I do think that there that mm. that the competition um, can be healthy, but you have to have a clear coordination around who does what. And um, without clear lines, it becomes difficult. And, and I think cyber is especially challenging, right? It's it's an area in which there are no geographic bounds. Mm-hmm. And it is an area in which um, it's often hard to understand who is a foe and who's not, and in which intent is not clearly defined. And so when we talk about it, you know, is this a, uh, a criminal act? Is this a terrorist act? Is this an act of espionage? Is it an act of pre-operational planning? Is it an act of war? Unless the intent is clearly conveyed by someone about the action, you, you have no idea what's being perpetrated against you. And so it means many of our traditional ability to draw lines and authorities get kind of blurred in this environment. And so back to your original question, was it intentional? You know, there were a lot of healthy debates around should this be elevated, should it not, should it be integral? If you remember, at the time, we had also created so many different organizations Mm -hmm. with so many different leaders. I went through some of them in the 18-month period. At the same time, if you think about it, we immediately passed the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. So we created the DNI. We created NCTC. We created the Terrorist Screening Center. We had the NCIJTF. We had all of these various organizations. <laughs> and so at some point you say, okay, how do we make this manageable? How do we understand the interdependencies? Um, and quite frankly, as a Secretary of Homeland Security, what is a manageable scope of direct reports? Mm-hmm. And I would argue that as yeah. long as you have really good leaders in each of the organizations, you should be able to rely on a direct report to elevate up the topics that are important. What would you do now to strengthen DHS? I should say I, I'm a fan of where they have gone. They have done a good job. They have improved significantly, but many would say there's still room for improvement. Where would you Where would you urge them to focus? Um, I would agree with you that they have made a lot of strides that there is still room for improvement. I think they really need to focus on um, how do we make sure that in sharing information and in working with the commercial sector or the private sector, um, that we do it effectively. So there seems to be a real push on sharing information. Mm -hmm. And I like to really challenge that. So if you're just sharing for sharing's sake, I'm not sure that that's a valuable thing. and there's often time this, this view that, well, if we just get enough people cleared, we can share that really important, valuable, oh, classified, yeah. secret squirrel information. And you and I both know the reality of that. And, and the reality of that <laughs> um, makes us both laugh, right? Uh, but I would also say, in many times, what was the more valuable information mm-hmm. is the how, right? And so we spend a lot of time focused on the who, and really getting down to understanding an adversary and attribution. And that's really important for certain aspects of the government. But as a private sector entity, that's less important. What's more important is is how did they do it? Mm -hmm. And so we oftentimes gloss over the whole how and get to the sharing of a signature or a hash. And that information, in my opinion, is not long-lasting. It's constantly changing, right? Right. The adversaries just change where they are. The hash changes the specific way in which they're exploiting a vulnerability. But if we focus on that how, that doesn't change very often, right? 
And the other interesting thing about the how is that's often not the classified part. It's observable on the internet. It's internet behavior. And so instead of focusing on getting that super secret who specifically did it, I think the real push on information sharing should be on the how and then being clear, what do we want them to do about it? And that was always my fascinating discussion (laughs) with folks, right, which is we need to share more information. And my question to that was always to do what? The how point is really important. So I'd like you to explain what how is, but it made me think, um, how were relations with NSA in those early days? (laughs) To the extent you can say. (laughs) Yeah. As you know, I was at DHS. Uh, Uh I helped. um, Yeah, we're going to come to the White House days. So yeah, so I helped do the stand up of DHS and and was then there. And then I I went to the White House. I will tell you in the stand up of DHS, the interaction with NSA, there was very little, Hmm. which in retrospect is also shocking. (laughs) Right. Um, You would have expected much closer uh, Mm. connectivity, much more support. You know, funny enough, doing congressional relations at DHS in the very, very beginning, Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have an advanced policy shop. Right. Mm. We were Mm. creating many of the policies as we were running the department. So you had an entirely new organization that was tasked with defending critical infrastructure we had the basis of that based in the Clinton doctrine around, you know, PDD 63. 63, yeah. Um, we eventually had HSPD 7 that defined yeah. the various critical infrastructure sectors. Mm-hmm. But Congress would ask us very legitimate questions around, okay, so what is deemed critical infrastructure? I mean, the reality at the time is you looked around and you said, okay, there's there's a handful of us. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're challenged to even be able to acquire paper, mm-hmm. right? There was no... For the non-existing entities brought into DHS, there was no acquisition process. So the basic aspects that you assume occur in departments and agencies all had to be created. Where was that? That was up at that uh, naval radio facility up near American (laughs) University. The NAC. Yeah, the NAC. I forgot. The first time I went there, I just walked in, which was sort of, I felt like turning myself in. Like, I I should not be able to just walk into the building. Oh, I I will tell you about some of the early days. So, you know, it was the... This uh, old military facility with three-story tall brick buildings placed narrowly beside each other. And so you walk down this really narrow brick hallway into this building that had, you know, 1960s decor and the various shades of government brown that (laughs) you expect. Uh Um, And that was supposed to be the Department of Homeland Security, Um, Mm. you know. Right. I think Secretary Ridge uh, has openly joked that even the subway that was originally on the NAC facility decided to leave, um, <laughs> <laughs> which says a lot yeah. about the infrastructure that we had. Um, those were were fun early days. You know, even before that, mm. we were actually over at 1800 G Street. Oh, I vaguely um, knew that. 1800, what was it? G Street. Uh-huh. So we took over. Well, that was the Dick Clark uh Y2K office. Yes. So okay. we took over the Holy old cow. Yeah. Dick Clark Y2K office uh, as we were part of the transition team. Uh-huh. Um, and it was very small space. And so you got cozy with your neighbor <laughs> and it didn't matter whether you were soon to be an assistant secretary or um, the secretary of Homeland Security. We were all in very small <laughs> cubicle space together. That's really funny. It out. 
How did you end up at the White House? Did they just sort of pluck you out of it or did you, well, how did that work out? Um, so depending on your view, I was either in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time. You know, I, as I mentioned, I kind of fell into the chow mm-hmm. and then post 9-11 working the Homeland Security Act and then helping stand up the department, I had IAIP as my responsibility area. And we were really trying to create the policy around how do you do infrastructure protection. At that time, under that organization was all the intel, the operations center, cybersecurity, uh, infrastructure protection, all those different topics. And so I had worked closely with the Office of Homeland Security and then the early staff at HSC. And so when they decided to build out their critical infrastructure directorate, uh, I was asked to come over and join um, huh. Back to the timing piece, mm-hmm. either good timing or bad timing. That was right um, before Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Oh, good. Perfect timing. <laughs> Perfect timing, yes. <laughs> what was it like there then? Because um, you were basically, you, if you ended up creating or being involved in the creation of at least three new shops, what was it like going over to the White House? I will say it is the most humbling experience I've had. It was one of the most difficult to experiences I've had. I've never been more impressed with a group of people who are trying to do so much mm-hmm. uh, and do it so quickly. Um, mm. And I learned so many lessons being there. Um, mm. You know, I know a lot of the folks you've interviewed have talked about the intrusions that occurred in 2008. And really, from my perspective, we were working it much sooner than that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And so I originally ran up, went over to have critical infrastructure. As you know, the role quickly emerged. Um, and I was asked to help stand up a cybersecurity organization, mm. uh, directorate, mm-hmm. and also took on information sharing. So the information sharing policy around how we share with state, local governments, as well as the private you sector. You mean uh, general homeland security information, not just cyber? I mean, actually, all intelligence. So okay, under yeah. the new DNI, there yeah. was the information sharing environment was created. I remember. And so across the board, how do we share law enforcement information, intelligence, homeland security information, cyber information? And so I was challenged with helping staff a cybersecurity directorate. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was in HSC. It was within HSC, but the mission was broader. So mm-hmm. if we can back up a little bit. Um, so around the 2003-2004 timeframe, mm-hmm. there were a series of intrusions that occurred, uh, nation-state intrusions into federal networks, publicly reported about in about the 2006 timeframe. Mm-hmm. And so the task at hand was, how do we address these issues, right? And the intelligence community had created a task force to address it. Melissa Hathaway uh, mm-hmm. had led those efforts there, working with Admiral McConnell. Um, <laughs> but we quickly realized that the equities at stake and what needed to be talked about were much broader mm-hmm. than just the intelligence community or defense. And in fact, were mm-hmm. writ large government issues that needed to be addressed. And so um, I was tasked with putting together an organization within HSC to address this and working hand in glove with NSC. And is so, that Greg Rattree or who was it then? John Bansomer was oh, no actually kidding. the first person I know yeah. uh, that I was working with directly as uh-huh. we were trying to address this. And we were focused on quietly accomplishing the things that needed to be accomplished mm-hmm. to address the issue. 
Although one of the worst things you guys ever did was coming up with the APT instead of saying the names of people, because now this APT thing continues to haunt us. It just jeepers. Come out and say it. Uh, <laughs> what was the thinking there? Well, I was not part of the APT, so you can't. Okay. You can blame me for a lot of things right, in the DHS world, but yeah. you can't blame me for the APT. When we were looking at the issue, we were lo really looking at it from, okay, so we had these intrusions. If we break it into three pieces, how do we sort of stop the bleeding? So how do mm -hmm. we address what's happened? How do we position ourselves to stay ahead of an adversary to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future? And then what are the forward-reaching aspects of cybersecurity that we need to be contemplating today? Mm -hmm. And so the idea was to address it across the board. And we did so in an interagency process. And the fun thing about this, uh, and I could talk about this for hours, is how many of the folks um, who are prominent in cybersecurity today were actually quietly at the table helping develop this policy mm -hmm. back in those days. Um, and we did it in a way uh, that was different. And so one of the challenges in cybersecurity is, as I mentioned, everyone had conflicting authorities. And it was quite easy at any meeting for anyone to bring their authorities to the table, right? And what most people don't understand is that in the White House, you have very few sources of power to make things happen. I talk about it as you have the power of persuasion, right? You can try to convince the departments and agencies that this is the right thing to do. You have the threat of escalating it up eventually to the cabinet or to the president, but you have to be careful how often you use that threat, <laughs> right? And be careful how that's going to turn out for you. You sometimes have the power of embarrassment, right? So you can publicly point out what people are or are not doing. And at times, you have the power of the purse if you work closely with OMB to help guide the budget requests. But again, on that, it's limited, right? Because Congress has the appropriations and authorization authority. And so... Uh, when you're at a table trying to hash through tough policy decisions, and let me tell you, in cyber, there were many tough policy decisions and authority decisions, you know, people would um, go around you, go to the Hill. Huh. Uh, each of these organizations, as I mentioned, had their own committees, sure. right? And they, they had their own fiefdoms to help protect their history of doing Some what they were doing. Some things never change. Correct. Some <laughs> things never change. And so we quickly realized that if we wanted to get agreement around mm -hmm. what had to happen, we needed to approach it a little differently. And so the leadership at the time in the White House, my leader, Fran Townsend, who was a wonderful boss and taught Who's me, on our board, by the way. Yeah. So. Uh, and taught me so much, agreed to let us host a cabinet meeting to get approval on what needed to happen in the CNCI, CNCI or the Conference of National Cybersecurity Yeah, I want to come back to that too. So, um, yeah. She let us get approval on the things that had to happen mm -hmm. without indicating who would do it. Hmm. And so this was a different approach. Normally mm -hmm. you said, here are the things that need to happen. Here's who's going to do this. By separating out that fight, different organizations were led to believe that they would have the lead. And so they agreed that these were the right things to do. And so we had everyone agree that these you know, 12 initiatives, and I think it was something like six enablers, were in fact the right things to do uh, without bringing in any of the fights that had inevitably stopped previous discussions mm -hmm. when people fought over who would do it. 
Um, and so I think that was one of the things that helped make us successful as we separated those two arguments. How did you get from the strategy to the CNCI? So 2003 strategy, when was CNCI? 2007? So it was an interesting road. Um, mm -hmm. So you had the national strategy, then you had HSPD-7. Uh, you had a couple of documents mm -hmm. that guided cybersecurity in between. Um, but really what happened was a series of interagency meetings and agreements that were formalized under a presidential directive, an HSPD and NSPD. So back to that jointness that mm -hmm. we approached it as both Homeland Security and National Security. Um, that was signed in uh, January of 2008. But really, by the time you've gotten to that document, the departments and agencies have reached agreement. Um, the meetings occur in advance. And so we had cabinet approval uh, really around the um, end of 2007 as to what needed to occur. What was your favorite part of CNCI? Do you have a favorite? I do. Um, and sadly, my favorite part of the CNCI has been the biggest challenge. It was really around... How do we move beyond just uh, viewing this as something that one entity is responsible for doing? Mm -hmm. How do we understand the cyber challenge as both something we need to protect against, um, something we need to have thought through how we get ahead of an adversary? That piece, I think, was really um an interesting aspect of it that many times is lost. People tend to look at all the things we did to sort of address the intrusions. I think the more valuable thing that we did was look at how do you stay ahead of an adversary? What mm -hmm. do we need to put in place? Um, and a recognition that a lot of these roles and responsibilities needed to be defined and that it wasn't easy to define who should do what. You know, one of the big debates we had was the role of DHS versus DOD versus NSA. And so um, we needed to put someone in charge of protecting federal networks and someone in charge of addressing the threats to critical infrastructure. And at the time, if you looked around, uh, NSA had the capability and the know-how. But they're an intelligence organization. Mm -hmm. uh, and as years later, Snowden would show, you have to be really thoughtful before you have an intelligence organization responsible for protecting private sector data and the larger federal government, right? You had DOD, but that's a military organization. And rightfully so, we looked at that and said, you don't necessarily want the Defense Department protecting private sector entities. Um, and, and that gets into some interesting policy aspects of Title 10, Title 50, and, mm -hmm. and when it is a defense operation versus when it's not. And then you had DHS, who had the responsibility. But as we talked about, um, you know, it was a new organization without a lot of the capability. And so you're faced with three options, none of which admittedly were a perfect option. Mm-hmm. But what becomes the best way to try to approach this? And the thought was, okay, so let's make a decision around where does this make the most sense? And then how do we try to make them successful and what we've tasked them to do? And how do we really define some of the lanes in the road in an environment which is changing and changing rapidly? Thanks for listening to Cyber from the Start. 
You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start.